Hey everyone, welcome to this podcast brought to you by Raptor Aid and hosted by me, Jimmy Hill. During the coronavirus lockdown, we decided to host some live interviews with raptor conservationists and experts from all over the world. The podcast you're about to listen to was recorded during the lockdown period live on Facebook. Apologies if some of it sounds a little bit disjointed and we go a little bit off track with questions from the audience, but hopefully you'll enjoy listening to your favourite expert right here on Raptor Rambles. In this interview, I'm really lucky to be joined by award-winning author and great friend of Raptor Aids, Helen MacDonald. Now, I've been lucky enough to work with Helen on a couple of projects. She's always great fun to work with and chat about birds of prey. And some of you may know her from that small book that she released and won lots of awards for, H's for Hawk. Now, Helen really does have raptors running through her blood, and I hope you enjoy listening to this interview as much as I did chatting to Helen. Right. Okay. Welcome, everyone. Sorry we're a couple of minutes late. My fault. Uh, Wi-Fi and thunderstorms. Uh, so welcome to, to Raptor Aid. And welcome, Helen McDonald. Thank you very much for joining. Hello. Us. This is a real honour. It's so nice to see your face, Jimmy. I just want to yeah. everyone, there may be moments in this in this chat uh, in which um, this thing appears. Uh, this is my parrot, uh, who is a sweetheart, but is also a bit of an attention seeker. So if I start sort of, you know, just don't worry about the parrot, he's fine. We like, I, lo- I love the parrot. I f- yeah, he, he can, uh, maybe I need to do one with the parrot as well. Um, well people, people, people always say to, oh, you see, let me go, look, this is a classic. People always say to me, you know, um, is it not it really, because they, no, they're really cuddly creatures. And people say, you know, is it, is it, you know, after all these years with birds of prey, is it like not emotionally more healthy to have a parrot because they're cuddly? And I'm always like, start laughing and say, like, I've, I've, got, I've got more scars from that parrot than I've had from any raptor I've ever handled. Like he's vengeful. So yeah, they're, they're a handful. Well, I used to, I used to work um, in a, a collection, an animal collection, and they had a parrot, a, a cockatoo called um, Harvey, and and I was, ter- I was terrified of him. <laughs> and, and like you say, I, I've grabbed, I've handled some of the biggest eagles you can, but that beak, I was like, boy, oh, no, yeah, no way. No, no. Anyway. So, yeah, and there we go, parrots. Well, thank, thank you for joining us anyway, Helen. I, I really appreciate it. So I always start with this in the same way and getting people to go right back to the beginning and talk about what, what got them into not just birds of prey, but nature. What, what was, if there was a defining moment or several defining moments through you, your childhood or older years and just go from there, basically, roll with it. What was the defining moment? I was just a nature nut. Or who? Or who? Um, a nature nut very, very early on. Um, I had a, 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 my dad passed away, but he was a photographer and um, uh, a wonderfully slightly spectrumy man. He was a really good photographer and he was into aeroplanes. And I think that my bird obsession may have been a bit like a kind of, you know, sort of hand-me-down because he was always looking up, you know, we'd go out with the binoculars and we'd always look, look up at things. And he had a whole, but he had this amazing collection of books, lots and lots of field guides. And um, they were my favorite books when I was a kid. I used to just sit there and learn spiders, you know. In fact, I used to keep my Collins book. It was in the, in the bathroom. I used to sit on the loo and, and, and learn my birds. I can't believe I just said that. Um, but we lived in this really weird place in Camberley in Surrey. It was a, um, like a kind of old country estate in the middle of town that was owned by this um, 19th century weird spiritual society called the Theosophical Society. We weren't theosophists, we were a bunch of atheists, but we yeah. were surrounded by these very eccentric, mostly old ladies. And um, it was a really safe place. And I used to just run off um, when I was a kid into this environment and I spent so much time just becoming a naturalist. I used to sort of lounge around in the meadow, I used to climb trees. I used to come home with grass snakes, you know, mum's like, Helen, <laughs> like, you know, I can smell it because they have this horrible defensive <laughs> smell and I come in with it and yeah. they take the snake away. And, um, and of course, you know, as soon as you get into being known as someone who likes wildlife, people bring you orphan birds to rear. So I remember one year I reared a nest of baby bullfinches that someone had cut their tree down and 
At one point there was, a, there was an orphan badger cub. I mean, I really was something out of a storybook, but it's always been there, Jimmy. It's, it's, um, it's just totally part of who I am. I've always um, thought of myself, you know, I've been a writer, I've been a historian, but most of all, I'm a naturalist. And of course, Birds of Prey early on were the things. All my mates had, you know, pictures of Bay City Rollers on their bedroom walls, and I had sort of posters of short-term eagles. Um, so yeah, I, I always wanted to be a falconer. And um, when I used to go down to this place called the Hawk Conservancy in Andover, which was like one of the very early falconry centers, and yeah, I was yeah. a little and utter pain in the I used to bother them. I used to help clean aviaries out, you know, do all the things. And when I was, I think 12 or 13, they decided I knew enough that I could have my first bird. And I got, um, she was a kestrel called Amy and she'd been kept in a parrot cage by someone who was clearly an idiot. And um, that was it, you know, I flew every day, kept her for years. And that was how I got into falconry. How did how did you enjoy it at the at the Hawk Conservancy? I have to ask you that because I know I got really well with Ashley Smith. Um, I have tried to get him, but obviously his allegiances still lie with the Hawk Conservancy, and I know they've been doing stuff during lockdown and video, he's been doing talks about the history, which have been lovely. Um, so I I love the Hawk Conservancy, um, and all the team are so nice that are there. But Ash and Ash Smith and Tracy are wonderful people. So yeah, really. how, how did you how did you enjoy it at the Hawk Conservancy then? Oh, I can't. I, I mean, I just look back on it, and it was you know I don't know how my parents put up with it. They used to you know put me on the train in the morning, come and get me in the evening, and and that was it. Every weekend they used to sort of you know drag themselves around Andover waiting for me. I mean, they were the most amazingly patient parents. Um, it was great. I I um, you know looking back on it, I think I was quite a weird kid. Um, you know, I, I just didn't fit in at school at all. I didn't fit in, didn't really have many friends. I was bullied quite a lot. You know, I was the weird bird person. So it was like a really great place to, to, to go, not only to hang out with the birds, which was basically the main reason I wanted to go, but to be with people who love the same things that I did. And that was a really special thing for me then, just to feel that I wasn't alone in this passion. Um, oh and uh, that's still, you know, looking back on it, I, I really treasure that. Oh, nice. Good. So when did, when did that blossom into um, this desire to get a, get your own bird, like, rather than one at the Hawk Conservancy Trust? Did that, when did that occur? Did that occur before sort of H's for Hawk developed or? I always wanted my own birds, you know, I, I, you know, it's easy to kind of think about falconry and what, in particular falconry, why it called me. I mean, partly it was a really obvious reason that I thought, that raptors were the most beautiful things the world has ever made. And I still sort of think that. And I wanted to just hang around them. And I think there's an American falconer, you know, I can't remember who it was a long time ago said that, you know, if, you, if you're into birds of prey, falconry is the ultimate, you know, it's the ultimate relationship with them. Because, you know, as you know, Jimmy, if you do it right, what you're seeing is in principle, exactly what a wild bird is doing, only you get to see it right there. Yeah. Um, so there was always that. Um, I was a little bit kind of charmed by the whole kind of ridiculous romance of falconry too, you know, there was yeah. something about the kind of medievalism, you know, and then there was a kind of a slightly more dubious, I kind of loved all those kind of stuffy Victorian people in tweed, you know, I not so much into that now. Um, and I think there was another reason, and this is kind of a bit called psychology, but I was a twin. I had a twin brother who died just after uh, we were born. And even when, when I was really small, I was always looking for something that was missing, my other half. And I think falconry fed into that. There's something about having this wild creature who by its, na by its nature is, you know, it's not, it's not a cuddly, you know, it doesn't run to you like a dog. Be with me, love me, love me, love me. And then you let it go and it comes back, it comes back and it comes back because of the bond you've built. And I think there's something about that, um, that movement that spoke to me about this early loss and how it might somehow be salved or retrieved and I, I do think it's partly that for me yeah it's that early loss I mean it is I, 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 it's hard to explain I mean I'm, I'm I've stepped away from the captive bird of prey thing for well it's been a few oh, years oh, now but it, it is it is hard to explain that the each in the the whole the manning process when you sat there and you've got this bird that's hanging upside down and that shit crazy really and then eventually it grabs onto your glove and you feel that 
And then that, when you get to that moment where it starts to take its eyes off you and feed off the fist or it closes its eye and goes see, and it's just you and the bird. You, it's just, I'm, I've done this time and time, sat in my mum's utility room and she'd slowly open the door and and uh, and the bird had bait and I'd, ca- I'd curse her. And she'd say, I know, I know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, it's that, and, it, and then it, you'd get it back again. And you'd sit there in the pitch black and what my parents must have thought. Yeah. Little son sat sat in the dark in the utility room with a Harris or whatever it is, yeah. And it's hard to explain that. And that's why, yeah. It's like it's like it's like a kind of meditation. I think. I mean, there's it's a kind of state of mind that you go into where you kind of turn invisible and you. It's 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 not like any other kind of way of being that I know. And um, and it's always really special. I always think of Steve Bodio's kind of definition of falconry. You know, this American falconer and writer. He says, you know, falconry is the art of being very polite to a bird. And I think that really, in many ways, captures it for me. Oh, brilliant! Good. So, obviously, we we're we're going to have to talk about the book. The book. But before we talk about the book, Cages for Hawk, there was another book before that, Falcon. I have actually. I've got a copy of it in here because I was reading it for. I was picking through it. I think actually for historical reasons because i mean the cultural aspect fascinates me between humans and birds of prey so i i don't know where it is i haven't got it here sorry don't worry i'm going to ask you to show it to me jimmy (laughs) (laughs) well i have been doing that though i've been holding a book up so i feel like a fraud now with you so i don't know where where it is and annoyingly i did find a copy because who was the it was part of a, a range of books was it react Reaction. Reaction. A whole series of books on different animals and you know and, and I think that that book was really interesting for me because it was a real gateway drug so I um basically what happened is I I can I can I go back a bit on my I don't yeah, want to yeah. destroy the narrative so I I I wanted to be a naturalist uh, obviously I wanted to be a biologist but I have the worst math skills of anyone I know I can't even add up a list of figures and that obviously is a problem. You know, I would have been a great 19th century naturalist, obviously, if I'd been very rich and lived in the 19th century and been a man. Yeah, that's probably not going to work. But anyway, basically, I, was, I couldn't do it because I didn't have the maths. So I did an English degree. And then after my English degree, I, we might talk about that a bit, I went off and worked in raptor conservation and raptor breeding. And I worked a bit in the Middle East and I kept seeing all these conservation initiatives fail because no one that was trying to implement them was paying much attention to the really deep cultural importance of falcons in that culture and why they were being used and how they were being used. And I thought, this is really interesting. Why does no one work on the cultural aspects of animals? So I went back to university and I I worked, I did a master's degree in the history and philosophy of science and then started a PhD. And I got so into this subject, it's fascinating. It's really the thing that really more than anything else now I think drives me. And um, as I was doing this PhD, I kept finding all these stories and anecdotes that didn't fit in it. And I ended up writing this book. And as I was writing it, I realized this other thing. And that was that there are all these brilliant ideas in in the university, all these research ideas, these analytical ideas. And no one was ever reading them apart from the people in the universities. And I thought that's really not on. So I I, I think that was the moment I realized not only as I was writing that book, that it wasn't gonna be totally academic, but I wanted to write for everybody. It was, I just thought it wasn't fair that the university kind of just keeps all this stuff to itself. And that was the that was the beginning of the end, really, for me at university. Did you, so? Did you complete the PhD? This is no, no, to it, no. Uh, that's all uh, oh, right. Okay, <laughs> that's, do, do you know that's really refreshing to hear because I'm just without swinging it back to me, um, but I'm going to. Um, it's I'm just about to start a PhD, potentially about to, but but on the basis with with um, on the basis that. Um, yeah, it, it, I didn't want it to be just something that the university, I did it, the university had hold of it, and then that was it. And so, yeah, we, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm looking at something that, yeah, anyone, it's going to benefit more than just the university. And, and um, sorry, I, I haven't really mentioned No, it. no, I think, I think once we finish talking, I want to hear all about this. Sounds yeah okay well, I'll tell you I'll tell you because no one else will be interested in it uh, but yeah uh, that was really fre- refreshing to hear that from you that's made me feel a little bit better about what well, I'm, there what was I'm really weird there me. was this, there was this point and, and you know it was one of those lessons in life where you realize that sometimes 
realizing that you don't want to do something is just as important as realizing that you, you do yeah. want to do something. And um, it was a real weight off my mind when I decided to just you know, put that down. So how did you land that book then? How did that come about? Because I was just about to make a joke and this is God's honest truth. I, I was looking for the Falcon book. I can't find it. It's in the, it's in here somewhere, but I found the guinea pig one because my wife is obsessed with guinea pigs and rabbits. That's cool. And, but that wouldn't, that wouldn't have had the same effect. Uh, but yeah, there you go. How did you come about to be the, the person that wrote about falcons, just like the person who wrote about guinea pigs and so on? Well, I think the saddest thing about the way the publishing industry works, and it doesn't always work like this, but it has traditionally worked like this, is who you know. And I was sitting in a university cafe in the library, and I knew of this guy vaguely who was the editor of this series, and he knew I was into falconry, and he was looking for writers, and he sat down and said, I'm doing this series. You know, we're doing different animals and we're doing their cultural history. You know, do you know anything about the cultural history of falcons? And I was just like, do I know about the culture? I mean, it's all like <laughs> all I bloody knew about. So, um, so I said yes, and I, I got this tiny advance and wrote this book. And um, I love the illustrations in it. I think that's the best thing about that book. The illustrations are really awesome. It's really, really, really pretty. It's full of pictures. Yeah. And um, yeah, that was the first kind of you know book that that that, that went out there. It got a tiny review in the Times. Exciting, like you know, like this big, and yep. I'm a writer now, so uh, yeah. Time, well, I'm, sorry, I'm, I'm, no, I'm just saying, I'm actually rewinding, I've jumped the gun here by going into the books, but yeah, talk about university because you went to Cam Cambridge, yeah. that, that's right. Tell yeah. us a bit about university, sorry. Um, yeah, well, I, I, was a, I was a state school kid, I went to the local comprehensive, um, and uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I went to this women's college that didn't wasn't very high up in the women's college in the Cambridge University college tables but it was the only one that anyone from my school had ever got into so I ended up going there and I had quite a bad time there actually I was didn't really again I felt really alienated because it was I mean it still is full of very very posh people uh, who knew a lot about life and you know stuff and I knew nothing and I I'd spent a lot of time not doing any work um, quite embarrassed missing this so I mean I got in quite a lot of trouble a few times because I just wouldn't write essays but I was reading all the time I read and read and read and read and there was a lot of kind of late night coffee and you know um, stressing out um, but I got the degree and then I realized that what I wanted to do was work in falconry because that's what you do after an English degree Jimmy you go and work in falconry so I went down to Wales and worked for a person that we both know in Wales, um, Dr. Nick Fox, and I, I was working both in the office there, helping with conservation um, research projects on falcons used and affected by Arab falconry, and also running a whole load of imprint falcons for AI. So yes, you know, half my life was typing, and the other half was having falcons mate with my head. Why not? There you go. It happens. This, this is, yeah. <laughs> Whatever pays the bills. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if your viewers listen, but but there's a way of making uh, of breeding falcons that is. Um, I don't know if you talked about it before. You may have done on I this. Don't, I don't think we've covered artificial insemination. Oh, oh, yeah. but you can you can go there. <laughs> so basically, if you if you um, you can breed birds of prey by putting two in a pen together, and they kind of pair up or they don't pair up. And and actually, it's really interesting. There's a lot of pairs, natural pairs, at this place, and some of them never got on. And we had this one pair that was so in love. I've never seen anything like it. They, they were inseparable. And they, they were a pair of sakers. And they used to sit next to each other and preen each other all day. They were completely in love. And I think that was when I realized that, you know, birds have feelings. They really, you know, that it's not just, they do have sentiments and they can fall in love. So anyway, yeah, if you, if you take a young bird and you rear it from an egg, um, from a chick, uh, and it, eventually it, it grows up, but it starts to think of itself as this sort of being, which is kind of, finds humans kind of sexy and um and what you do is you, you you know you spend a lot of time with this bird and you kind of court it you give it gifts of food and um yeah this is all seemed very reasonable and normal when i was there but and then eventually at breeding season you're kind of you're bowing and calling to it i can do very good impersonations of most falcon species these days i haven't for a while but anyway and then you you put on this <laughs> oh God, it's so you put on this latex hat with little kind of dints in it, like a, a bit like a kind of like, you can imagine pressing a pencil into a sort of plastic yeah. you've got these dints. They're like it. a honeycomb, aren't they? It's a honeycomb yeah. sort of, so, yeah. And you, you know, basically like, you know, do your best kind of like seductive kind of routine with a, with a male falcon and it will leap on your, on your head and it will copulate with it. And then you collect the, uh, 
the sperm with a syringe and then you um, check its quality under a microscope and then you use that to inseminate a female falcon who is also in love with you. I mean, it's like some weird messed, messed up interspecies Lothario. Um, and it was like, you know, it became really normal. I remember go, sitting with a, one of my colleagues in a motorway service dump station once, a guy, and we were discussing sperm quality and, you know, and, and I looked around and everyone on the other tables was looking kind of not only horrified, but faintly sympathetic. Like they clearly thought we were trying to have a kid. And <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was interesting. What what did uh, was you actually still had the hat on as well? No, 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 I was well, no, no, no. already dressed at that point. Yeah, yeah. falcons, and I mean, it was just it was like it was like living in a you know candy shop for me. I mean, it was just birds, birds, birds. It was wonderful. Yeah. So, okay, I mean that must have been an incredible experience. Again, one of my favourite books for um, raptors, birds of prey, and captivity is Nick Fox's Understanding Birds of Prey. is is a fantastic really book. Really um, so so yeah. That's uh, that's that's very good. Sorry, no, no, it's all right. So Cambridge, and then so did you know at what point did you think I, I want to write? You know, because you've just said obviously that you didn't like writing essays, and, and I, then... I, I, no, it's it's not. That I didn't like writing essays. I just didn't like. I don't. I I respond really badly to authority. I'm, okay. I'm like the world's worst employee. So basically, if someone tells me to do something, I will do anything not to do it which is why writing is quite a good career for me because I generally, you know, I'm working on my own. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, I wasn't happy and I kicked against the system basically. Um, but there's a difference writing stuff that you want to write because you want to tell people things to writing an essay. You know, one's just an exercise and one is like, look at this cool stuff. This is amazing. You know? Yeah. And that's yeah. what I like doing. So when did that, when did that come? Was it a light bulb moment or was it something I kind of, you know, you're doing the falconry, you're working for Nick Fox and, and you're involved with other aspects of it. Was it a light bulb moment or was it, you knew it's, that you were absolutely going? It was a, one of the most heartbreaking moments of my life, actually, Jimmy. In fact, it was, it was at the Baltimore Centre that we used to work. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, the dogs, the dogs are okay. On. Let me go and move the no, dogs. No, no, <laughs> I'll just keep talking. So one, one of the things that we used to do at this falconry centre was take people out on um, falconry experience days. And um, I used to, you know, we used to load up this this vehicle and there'd these nice people that from all over the, you know, the place and they'd come along and they'd, they'd go out onto the, you know, in the vineyards. You remember it all, Jimmy, you'd go out. Yeah, yeah. And there was, this, it was a really spectacular spring day. There were these huge fluffy cumulus clouds. There were massive kind of thermals and we were lying on this bank looking over this valley and these Harris hawks are on the soar. They're soaring above us. And it's like, it's just fantastic. I mean, it's like, you know, and all, and it's so beautiful that all the people that are with the group are just lying next to me, just lounging, watching these birds. And, and I'm sitting there thinking, I am so bored. <laughs> it was this moment. And it was like, I love this, but my brain has turned to cold porridge. I, I really I need to go back to university and do something with my brain. And as I was thinking this terribly, like, you know, this awful kind of thought, I turn around and the guy next to me who was who worked at a bank somewhere in, in Leicestershire, I realized he was crying. And he turned to me and he said, I envy you. He said, I have, I have hated my job my whole life. He said, and you do this. You are the luckiest person in the world. Oh, no. <laughs> I was like, oh no! I mean, it was amazing, but I felt bad. Yeah, I was like, yes, it is. So, uh, so, you went, so, so, did you go back to university yeah, then? University then, yeah. Okay, and then, and then that was where the the star was born. That's what yeah. I. Learned. Yeah. So, um, so of course, I didn't have a hawk when I. I mean, initially, I did actually. I I, I flew a Merlin one year when I went back. That was really fun because I don't know if your listeners or viewers know the season for flying Merlins is fairly short. It's kind of over the summer holidays. So I flew Merlins. I love Merlins. They're my favorite, I think, to fly. They're like little heat-seeking missiles that are also unaccountably very cute. And um, so that was great. And then, and then this thing happened. You know, I was a few years into this PhD and I got this research fellowship at a college and everything was kind of fine. Only I just, I knew, I didn't, you know, I wasn't going to finish this thing. And then my dad died very suddenly of a heart attack and uh, it was grim. You know, he, he was not only a you know, great dad, but he was my friend. He was a really close sort of friend of mine, which is, I think, quite unusual. Um, yeah. Quite lucky 
I think to have had that and it was really sudden he was out taking photographs in London on a really stormy night and just keeled over and um, none of us even knew he'd been even slightly ill and my world kind of blew away and I kind of went into shock and you know I had this college house and I went back and tried to sort of work and do a bit of teaching and and it was really strange Jimmy all I could think about all I dreamt about for a long time was goshawks and there was this one goshawk that I dreamt about and it was one that was from the center we both worked at um, I don't know whether you were there that day. I think you might have been. Someone had been walking in the woods, some member of the public with their dog, and they'd found this bird under a tree. It was on its back like this. And they were like, oh, it's like an eagle or something or whatever. And they, they picked it up and, and it blinked. It kind of moved and they were like, oh my God. You know, so they put it in a box and drove it up to this falconry center. And and um, and I we all sort of gathered in, in the front room and the boss sort of put her hand in to get this, this bird out. And it was this huge old female goshawk. I mean, she was just so terrifying. She was like a thundercloud and a leopard. And I mean, she was this massively muscly thing and all her feet were kind of gnarled. She was clearly really old yeah. and she was absolutely fine. She just knocked herself out. I think when she was obviously after something and hit a tree and we just took her outside and let her go. And there was this moment, Jimmy, where she, she went over a hedge like a rocket and then somehow she just vanished. And it was like, she'd found this kind of a rent in the air, like a split, and she just slipped through it. Yeah. And that moment I just kept dreaming about, and I realized that it was very important for me. I mean, obviously after you've lost someone very dear to you, 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 do, don't, you don't really think in a very sensible way, but I had this incredible intuition that what was gonna get me through the next few months was training a goshawk. <laughs> um, and I can see you laughing. I mean, so anyone that's watching this and doesn't know what a goshawk's like, I mean, basically they're the Christopher Walpins of the bird world. They're like these, um, sort of murderous, highly strung, psychopathic creatures. Actually, I did a talk in Connecticut once at this library in Westport. And I said this, cause I, you know, trying to explain to people what a goshawk's like is quite hard. You know, I used to try and use military airport um, aircraft metaphors, but and no one knew what those were. So, so I said they're like Christopher Walken and, and I give my little spiel and usually everyone kind of finds that, you know, vaguely amusing, but everyone was like stony faced and I thought, no one in Connecticut knows, in this town, knows who Christopher Walken is. That's really odd. Anyways, I gave my talk and at the end of it, all these people kept coming up and they kept saying, you know, he lives here, right? He's a really nice man. He's not a psychopath at all. I was just really afraid of the entire place. I was like, no, no, I know, just the roles. So yeah, so I bought this goshawk. I bought a goshawk and, um, and that was, in many ways, extremely dumb. But I mean, I don't recommend training a goshawk as a way of dealing with anything. Really, it's not easy. Yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm laughing because I, this it takes me back to some of my first experiences with with birds of prey. And and actually, I live not not far down the road from him now. But one of the first people I ever went out with was a friend um, who who flew goshawks, um, and he had a female goshawk, a big Finnish brute of a bird. Inga, and and I got him access onto a farm uh, and, and he took me out one day, me him, and a friend of his. Um, who, and so basically she missed a, she missed a pheasant. And this is just the result. I don't remember anything else from the day, but she missed a pheasant and went up into a tree. This will paint a picture to people who don't know Gossels as well. And she wouldn't come down. <laughs> and this was the biggest field ever. And Dave's there. And in the end, he said, right, guys, you two are going to have to walk to the other side of the field and go and hide behind the head so she can't see you. Because that's... And we did. We had to go. And we're hiding behind the head watching Dave try and get this goshawk down. And eventually she came down. And I just thought, yeah, I'm not flying goshawks. <laughs> I don't want go. I don't want this in my life. One so, of the yeah. things, you know, I don't want to kind of delve into a bit of gender politics here because it, there's a really, there's a bit that I talk about in the book that makes me laugh so much. You know, they really are very temperamental. And uh, if you don't get their kind of conditioning and weight and, and you, know, you need to kind of get them into the mood to fly and all this sort of stuff. If you read all the 19th century books on falconry written mostly by, you know, officer class, you know, yeah. other bluff men who have strong opinions on ladies, you know, ladies shouldn't be allowed near the hawks, it upsets them. Um, you constantly read these articles about what goshawks are like, and it's hilarious. It's basically talking about like hormonal women. You know, they they'll, they'll bite your head off. They, they they never listen to what you say. They they're really moody. You know, they'll ignore you. They go into fits of tempers and rage. It's, and it's never 
ever considered by these guys that it might have been something they've done. It's always <laughs> just are completely inexplicable. And I just found this hilarious. You know, it's a, it's just um, you know, yeah. but they are they are interesting birds. But yeah, that was that was an interesting experience. So obviously, yeah, this 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 goshawk that you got. I don't again, and I I don't know who's what tuning in, and and who knows what about, and whether they've read H's for hawks. So that this obviously develops into this this book that that you wrote. How how did that come about? The obviously you're an author now. Did again was that a conscious thing, or did you just start writing stuff down? And yeah, it's a good question. Um... So I, I used to keep diaries when I was a kid and then I just stopped. And then when my dad died, I, I found myself writing something like a diary, like a journal. And I think it was looking back on it, a way of kind of just writing the world back into existence. You know, everything was just like, it's like, you know, after an explosion. And then when Mabel, my goshawk appeared, obviously I wrote about her. And so I'd write a lot about what happened and how I was feeling, you know, and uh, my worries, there's a lot of stress you know, falconry, it's not, it's not all, particularly with the gospel, you know, you know, I stopped worrying about myself. I just worried about what I was doing with this book. And it was a very strange year. I mean, I might talk a bit more about what happened in that season with her, but towards the end of it, I realized that what would happen was like a, it was a story that wasn't just about me. It was a much older story. It was a story about loss and about depression and about love and about death and about you know grief and all these things that are you know part of being a human and I thought I wonder if I should write this down as a, as a story and you know it took me seven years to get around to it because I think there are two kinds of books about grief one one of those kinds of books is about is the one you write in the middle of it like a bit like a sort of battlefield diary because you're nuts basically after you've lost someone and and then there are books that are written from a lot later looking back because by then you become a new kind of, you almost become a new person and you can write about the person you were without it being too painful or you know embarrassing. So seven years it took me to get around to writing, sitting down and writing it. And then it took a year and a half to write. And I'd sold it as a proposal to a publisher. So I knew that it was gonna be published. And as I wrote, I just kept thinking, this book is terrible. No one's gonna read it. It's so bad. It's so depressing. It's about a miserable woman, a dead author, and a bird. I mean, God. And I was wrong. I was completely wrong. So, yeah, you were. You were completely wrong. You're right. Did, did obviously, well, you've answered one of my questions there in, in how you expected it to go. When, when was the moment? Then I'm asking you, obviously, about a specific moment. Here. Um, when, when was the moment when you realised, holy crap, people really like this book? Was it when you won the award or when it, I, I don't know, when, when, do, as an author, when do you realize, wow, I've, I've, you know, this, this has struck a chord with people? Yeah. Well, it was, it was, it was weird. So I think I was helped a little bit because the manuscript was late as usual with my things. So the book came out a little bit later than it was supposed to. And it came out a really weird time of year for a new book. It came out in the end of July, which is the kind of traditionally the time when you don't release new books because everyone's on holiday. Yeah. And this meant that with some good reviews, it was like one of the only kind of new books knocking around and people were starting to buy it. So I think the moment that I realized it was gonna be, it might be a success was there was like a really, really big review of it in the Sunday Times, which um, clearly thought by an author, a writer that clearly thought I was a total psycho, but really loved Mabel. And um, I was like, oh, and then, yeah, and then it kept winning awards. And, and, and the weird thing is, you know, I've been I, I'm the sort of person that if I get a compliment, I'm like a slug when you pour salt on it, I'm really bad with compliments. So I was kind of numb. I felt really pleased for the book because if it was like a, an animal, yeah. but I didn't really feel it was me, you know, because when you, it's like, it's, uh, writing a book's a bit like making like, I don't know, I think about being a potter or something, you make a pot and then you judge the pot. You don't judge your skills, yes. you judge yeah. the pot. And I just think I used to just get pleased for the book, which, um, and then, you know, things happen. Like I managed to, you know, afford a car that didn't break down every four miles, which was amazing. That was really good. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, it's it's a wonderful book. I, it's weird. I, yeah, these things, I know, I remember, um, well, I remember when I first met you at, at the centre we've, we've mentioned. Um, but I remember one day I, I was in the, believe it or not, I was in, uh, people won't believe this, but I was in the local running club 
Newent Runners Club. Oh, and I was out running anyway. And someone said to me, who got no interest in birds of prey whatsoever. And this has happened two or three times now. And they've gone, have you read that book, H's for Hawk? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I have. And, you know, I'm obviously, obviously then I'd name drop um, and go, well. Uh, and, and yeah, they were like, we love it. We absolutely love it. And these are people, and they're like, we, you know, we don't know anything about falconry or birds of prey, but we, and and it's we they found it fascinating and well a whole host of emotions. So, so yeah, it's uh, having, it, that, having all of, that moment. You know, I think there was like someone who knew someone said that their dad they were reading it in a book group at their father's golf club, and at that point I thought, shit, you know, this really must be something. That doesn't sound like the kind of thing I'm right for. But yeah, so it was, it was weird. But yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it nailed it. So yeah, brilliant. Um, I'm just trying to think where should, let's let's stick with the gossips for now. I wanted to we'll mention your other your other book that's that's uh you've done. Um so Obviously, you wrote the book. It was very successful. I started seeing you in America on Instagram, thinking, "Yeah, she's made it." She's. She... I had a baseball <laughs> cap. Uh... I even had a baseball cap, and it was amazing. Um... <laughs> so yeah, right, that came about. But then, obviously, there was the. I've got to talk about the BBC Two. Doc Natural World and yeah. with Mike Burke had a wonderful team. Oh, no, actually, Ruan, the first time you met a wild goshawk, let's talk about that. Do you remember that moment? Which was that? I know this, but I'm, I'm, I, this is something I probably, I'm sorry, my brain is... Well, there's, there was a very handsome bearded chap who took you to a nest, so I hope you remember that moment. Do you remember meeting the goshawks with Mark Parker? I do! I do! I'm not supposed to... I don't think I was supposed to be there. I think I kind of blanked that out. I don't know if I was supposed to come along. I think I kind of basically just like hitched myself to the wall. No, you did. I think we did it for you. It was all arranged for Helen It's amazing. So basically we went to this, this forest, which, you know, locations should remain secret. Yeah. And um, so my first British, British wild gospel was what, was, what, was what it was. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. So, so basically we, we, um, we went into this, this wood and it was kind of like the kind of wood that's like, it's like something out of a kind of Swedish horror movie it's all kind of conifers and sort of filtered light and you can hear the kind of dripping sound of a robin calling you know like in the distance it's really quiet and then we had this I'm, I'm me and me huffing and puffing <laughs> <in the undergrowth. laughs> yeah. and um yeah we went to this ghost nest it was it was amazing and i remember i remember vividly that day that so, that, so you know it's really interesting actually in different parts of the country in fact a friend of mine sent me a, a picture from his house near Idaho of this nest and said what is it and I said this is a goshawk nest and I said you have to be very careful going near it because in America goshawks are extremely territorial and they you know people will literally get like talon rakes in their heads and get knocked out by these birds trying to defend their nests so I was like be careful and I think in Britain they're quite variable aren't they you, you'll get birds wow. you know, when you get to the nest they'll disappear and other birds that will be very present and that, yeah, they're, they're really, for me, in the eight years I've done it, they're the polar opposite. They disappear. You very rarely see the adults. Um, they might come and sit in a tree or circle above, but, yeah, they don't attack. Yeah, very different. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad you're, yeah, I mean, you really do have to wear a crash helmet if you're bringing or banding goshawks in America. But this bird, this bird, I remember this bird, there was a female, she was, she, was, she was circling and she was calling and there was something about watching this silhouette flickering through the, across the pines and it was like, well, there's really white skies, you know, there's sort of summer white skies. And it was like, it was like a, like a dragon. It was just amazing. And then I watched you climb up a tree like it was a ladder. It was absolutely astonishing. Not bad for a fat lad, I know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's uh, yeah. What was it? Me and Robin. What we're like? I call Robin Yoda because he is when it comes to finding nests and understanding all about goshawks. And then I'm like, yeah. But then when we're both climbing, we're like spider pig, really. Spider pig. Um, I recall so, that. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> so, um, obviously, then we went to the same nest, but. Several a few years later, years for, the, later yeah. for, for the filming. So tell yeah. us a bit about that. How that... Well, this this was really great. So like I got lots of approaches um, to do a documentary um, after the book came out, and lots of them were kind of like, "We want you to reenact the," you know, and I thought I've already been through it once. I'm not bloody doing it again, you know. And then I got this approach from um, some filmmakers, and there was something about the way they talked about it that seemed different. 
it was like a really quite a respectful i mean they wanted me to train another bird but they said that they, what they'd really like to do is try and get across that delicate dance of training a goshawk for an audience to see what what it's really like like it's a like a wildlife documentary like you know and um also maybe you know see some wild birds and i i just sort of thought yes this this is the people so um and part of that involved um you know, going to this nest and there's this amazing scene. It's just really, I did it with James Aldred talked about it because he was the cameraman on this, that Jimmy went up and we brought these birds down. It was one of those really dark, dark summer days. And of course, as a cameraman, you know, you, you're worried about light and it's like the bottom of the sea at the bottom of this tree. And Jimmy's getting these birds out and they're like, you know, they look like sort of cotton wool with sort of like, I don't know, um, pangolin scales at this point with these huge sort of gray eyes and they're hissing and putting them on the ground. and. And there's this point where I said to James, you have to get this because we've got to get these back really quickly and there's no second chances. And I could literally see sweat breaking out. <laughs> it's just, this is like a nightmare for a wildlife photographer. So we're like, you know, we're looking at, we're trying to do these birds and he came out and he honestly, you remember he was completely drenched, poor man. He was such a nice man, he was amazing. And he set up the tree for, I don't know how, two, how many weeks it was in this tiny, tiny little, yeah hide photographing these birds he's an absolute yeah. god isn't he really james aldred he is yeah he's uh he's a uh, well that was the first time i met him and 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 yeah he's he's a legend and we've had we've had him on this but I, uh, his interviews back uh, yeah I, I need to make sure it's still on here but yeah he's he's a legend but it was for me it was brilliant it was brilliant to show you the birds again and to go to the same nest i that's what i spent yesterday doing it's late in the season now and obviously you know the dreaded pandemic as as uh as as knackered to see the monitoring up a bit this year but i i had to get a day's fix of gossip so i went out yesterday down to the forest of dean and, and did some did some wandering around didn't see many gossips but it doesn't matter just when you're in when you're in the when you're in the gossips amphitheater it doesn't really matter that you don't feel the presence i always think you know there's a difference between being if, you, if you're in any environment where there's any kind of apex predator the whole sort of tension is different in the way that the place works and that goshawk woods are different from other yeah. you can feel it it's amazing i'm being a bit woo woo here but um, no, yeah it, it, yeah it's true it's true that's what that's one of the one of the pulls of, of it for me anyway definitely so yeah so that and that was that was another success you you nailed that and and mike burkhead and that wasn't and, me you know. that was the filmmakers you know i just sat there like a lemon training hawks and wizards <laughs> but, um, but yeah they it, it it was brilliant because and i suppose the 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 sort of proof in the pudding for this was falconers liked it and they're probably one of the hardest bunches of people. No. To, to, I know, to, that was amazing. I was I never um, thought that would happen because of course you know one of the things that happened in the sixties when the film Cares came out the amazing um, Ken Loach movie based on the book by Barry Hines about this like amazing little kid you know in Barnsley who's you know in a mining town who has his kestrel it's really tragic you know don't see, cry maybe cry at the end but anyway he has this kestrel it's like a little tender secret and he flies his kestrel and it was such a hit that in the 60s a whole bunch of people went out after they saw it and just got kestrels they took them from the wild they bought them from pet shops and there was a lot of terrible things that happened to these poor kestrels people didn't know what they were doing and of course one of the, the things that happened after my book came out was that people started to go oh, you know it's gonna start a bit of a craze for falconry again helen this is gonna be a disaster but luckily jimmy I clearly made falconry seem so miserable and depressing and difficult that it didn't happen. <laughs> it's really good. Well, yeah, if that's, yeah, that, okay, well, they won't use you for an advert, clearly, but yeah. <laughs> no, it was. was I, a lovely I, film. It's a lovely film. It, yeah, the film, the film was it, it was brilliant, and it was a it was a pleasure to be to be part of it. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. I I really really enjoyed it. So. I've got to ask you this question because I don't. I I've sometimes said this to people, and I don't know whether I'm actually talking out my bottom. Is it true that the film the film rights for H's for Hawk is have they been snapped up? Is that something that's going to yeah. happen? Yeah, I, I mean, I I don't know what the, the you know COVID has really. I think they were going to film this summer, but of course, you know, the oh, wow. COVID messed it up. So as far as I know, so so yeah, I got this amazing email through my agent from the incredible Lena Headey, who played Queen Cersei in Game of Thrones and is amazing. 
And she read the book very early before it even was a success really. And she just said, I, I really want to play this. I really want to do this movie. This is, you know, this is it. And um, I spoke with her on the phone. I was terrified and she was lovely and she really got the book. And um, so she bought the rights. And then there was a kind of a whole period where, you know, ins and outs, it takes a while to get a film going. Um, and I met her and, you know, my friends are like, you know, she offers you wine, don't drink it, it'll be poison. <laughs> um, and she's completely lovely. And, and, and you know, um, I decided really early on that I didn't want to get involved, involved. Um, I think, you know, once you've, you know, a book is like, again, it's a bit like, you know, you've made it, you've done your book. And now if someone else wants to have a go at telling the story, you don't want to get involved with that. You know, that's that's not fair on them and it's not fair on you. And, you know, I'm quite excited to see what it's like. Um, so I think I think it was, yeah, again, I think it was going to be filming this summer, but I don't know what's happened um, because of COVID. I think a lot of productions have just stopped. So we'll see, but it's it's quite exciting. Oh, so it is happening. That's I, I didn't expect <laughs> you to say they were going to start filming in the summer. That's, yeah, that I, that's, that's yeah, that's brilliant. That's, it's that's very cool. I mean, yeah, being played by... You know, Lena is pretty pretty cool. It makes me feel yeah. very wow. So it's very exciting. Excellent. Um, and I, I don't know. You know, I mean, I, having interacted with her, she, you know, you know, I mean, Jimmy, you all know this. When you meet people, you can tell very quickly whether or not they can be a good falconer or not. And she's got that. Yeah. I think that quite, you know, that quite actually ability to really, really perceive what the hell is going on with another person. And she, yeah. and she, she was, she's going to be really, really good with the birds. So that's good. Brilliant. That's what, what. Oh well, I'm. It's, um, yeah, yeah. I, I can't wait for to to for that for that to come out. That's that's brilliant. Your new book. Yes. Has that has that? I, I can't remember now. Has it been released or was that put I'm back? I'm gonna just. Um, you can look at my new chair while I just go. Yeah, it. yeah, the Star Trek chair. Nice. <laughs> Bring the parrot back. <laughs> I've been sending it to people, so it's not out till um, August, uh, right. and uh, it's called. <laughs> it sounds like an American TV advert. It's called uh, Vespa Flights, and yep. uh, you'll see there's a Swift on the cover because Swifts are amazing. And it's not like Ages for Hawk. It's a collection of essays, and they range from everything from um, you know, it's a lot, a lot of birds. Um, there are essays in here about deer collisions, about bird watching from the Empire State Building, about migraines, about mushroom hunting, um, all sorts of things. And um, there's even a funny story about my dad and a goat. So um, I'm really, really pleased with it. And, you know, it's quite exciting. So uh, I hope if anyone reads it, I hope they like it. Yeah, uh, well, I look forward to uh, getting a copy. Is it? So are they personal essays, stuff that you've done and, and experienced or? Yeah, I, I, mean, I always think, I mean, some of them, some of them, are, I mean, a lot of them have appeared, not a lot of them, you know, many of them have appeared elsewhere. So a lot of them I've written a lot for the, so for the New York Times, for the New Statesman. I like writing personal essays. There's my parrot's tale. That's all right. And, um, I think the reason I do that is that I think, um, there's a lot of nature writing that I love, but it works in this particular way. It's basically, you go on a walk with a person and as you go on the walk with the person in, you know, in the book, they point out some nature and then they explain it to you. And um, this is fine, but I just think in the end that the, the power relation there is always that you don't know anything and they do, and they're telling you how lucky you are to, to learn about it. So yeah. one of the reasons I like about the personal essay is that I quite, it gives me the opportunity to not only get across the joy and the emotion that certain natural phenomenon provoke in me, but also to, to point out the things that go wrong, the things that when I get rained on and pissed off and, and I don't know what I'm doing and I can't identify things. And, and then when I can't, I don't know what things are, like what it's like to try and find out. Um, and I think that I like to sort of think to myself that I'm, I'm sort of standing with the reader finding finding stuff out with them rather than telling them how yeah. the world was and that's that's kind of how I how I like to, to think about it it's brilliant uh, well I can't yeah I can't wait to can't wait to read it I've got uh someone's at the <laughs> do you remember Gareth from the Raptor study from Gloucester Raptor study group Gareth Jones anyway I, what, I remember Gareth 
he's a, he's asked a question of how nervous were you uh, doing that the this book following H's for Hawk? Oh, the second album syndrome. Mm. Um, well, I mean, there are two ways of looking at it. One is like, oh my god, it's you know, it's a desert, it's terrifying. But the other way is to think, look, H's for Hawk was such a bizarre and unpredictable and success. There's no way that what I write now can follow it in that in that way. Like it's not right, possible. Yeah. I can't write that book again. Yeah. And in a, but in a way that's really really freeing because it means I don't have to panic about what I'm doing. I just do what I think is right and do what I think is um, try and make something beautiful and interesting and generous. And it being a book of essays makes that slightly easier because it's not the same kind of book, right? It's not it's not like a big story. The book after this is going to be a much bigger book, much more like Ages of the Hawk, and it's going to be about um, Midway Island, Midway Atoll in the Pacific, and um, the US Navy and the end of the world and albatrosses. So that's going to be a really another cheerful one. Um, it's going to be another big book about life and death and loss. And um, that's the one I think that I'm, I'm more nervous of because that's going to have to be a really... Um, I've got to make that sing in a particular way. And that's yeah. quite, yeah. Is it, is it as, I mean, I, cause I'm not that creative a person, but is it, you, you're saying about, you've got to make it sing. Is that as much that you've got to make it sing? You know what you want it to be and you know how you want to project it, but do it, doing it and, and that's going to appeal to a lot of. You never think of, you never think of, your audience is, a, is something you have to sell things to when you're okay. writing. So the, the way I think about an audience when I'm writing is I, I think I'm writing to one person. It's not anyone real, but it's a person that is kind of like my ideal reader. And it might be you um, out there, people. And um, the singing thing is weird. So, so one of the things that it took me a while with H. Just Hawk to realize, and I started writing it and I didn't put much about myself in, I put mostly about Hawks in and it didn't work. I kept kind of brick wall, you know, I couldn't get any further. And then I realized that I had to be absolutely, you know, devastatingly honest about the shit I was going through too. And I realized that readers can really tell when you're not telling them everything or when you're holding back or you're sort of dissembling or being a bit kind of pagey about something and they don't like it. And, it, and, and you can see that in any book you read, you can see if the, I mean, obviously nonfiction, but you can see if the author's being really, really straight with you. And I think to make a book sing, you have to get to the place where you are vulnerable enough to do that. I mean, I know it sounds really Californian, but you have to be vulnerable. You have to let the audience see who you really are. And that's a bit scary. Yeah, but that's how books sing. Yeah, well, and yours, well, ages for Hawks on, uh, it belted it. Uh, albatrosses. Yes. What interesting is you make that uh, mention that talking about birds. It doesn't have to just be raptors. Um, you, 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 I, I happen to know following you on social media and and one thing or another, you've got a soft spot for an albatross or two. I do. Well, tell, tell us a bit about what you've done with albatrosses. Six hundred and sixty-seven thousand pairs uh, winter before last. Um, so yeah, albatrosses are amazing. They are amazing. That's just you know, it's just it's just a fact. Um, and uh, so last, not this last December, but December before I spent a few weeks on Midway Atoll in the Pacific Ocean, which is a sort of two square mile island, which has got the ruins of a kind of a US Naval Air Station on it. Um, they left in 93 and also about 2 million birds. So wow. it's astonishing, you know, it's like the end of the world. You go there and it's just, you know, every three foot there's a blazing albatross or a black-footed albatross. I'll, I'll see if I can show you one, I've a picture on here. So I went there as part of an albatross counting team as a volunteer for the US Fish and Wildlife Service. And we spent these weeks literally walking up and down in lines with like, you know, those little counters? Yeah. Counting albatrosses. And we counted 667,000 albatrosses. <laughs> and um, it was amazing. It's such a great place. It was just the most incredible place ever. I got really sick when I was out there. I, I developed um, thyroid toxicosis from an autoimmune disorder I didn't know I had. And I got a goiter, which is like a horrible swollen thyroid. And I had to come home, which was really sucky. I didn't want to come home. I said to the guy there, I don't, I don't want to go home. You know, I want to stay here. And he said, if you don't go home, you might die. And I'm like, all right, I'll go home. <laughs> so I came home. Yeah, so I was like, all right, fair enough. So I'm sorry about this. It's very rude, I know. But I just want to find a picture to get people to see. Maybe you can see what it's what it was like to, to be on the island. It was an incredible place. Um, so I was meant to be there this summer. I was meant to be there right now. 
Um, and what I was meant to be doing was assisting with the mouse eradication because yeah. the island is full of albatrosses and underneath the albatrosses are bone-in petrels, which are little tiny sort of nocturnal um, seabirds. And the albatrosses, there's mice on the island, they're eating the incubating birds. Um, they need to be, ex they need to be ex exterminated. It's kind of grim if you're a mouse, but they were never meant to be there. They came in with, a, you know, with, with people. So they were going to, you know, the albatrosses have gone. They're going to catch up a lot of the other birds and put them in aviaries while they baited and killed all the mice. And I was meant to be there helping with these captive birds. And um, obviously I didn't get to go because of COVID. So hopefully next year. So I'm going to just show people what it was like on Midway. So this is like an average picture of Midway Island. I don't know if you can see that. Wow. There, yeah. is, there is some albatrosses. As far yep. as the eye can see. As far as I can see and then some. And we counted all of them. And it's really interesting, that, you know, those birds that we walk past them and some of them are quite snappy. I've got a few kind of albatross scars on my legs, you know, quite understandably, they're incubating. And some of them seem to be so touch starved that if you sit near them, they will actually put their heads down so you can scritch them. Oh. And um, when it rains, they all, because they're incubating, they, obviously there's no, they're not moving for like ages. When it rains, they all put the beaks up to the air and they drink the rain as it comes down. It was just the most incredible place. So that's that's where I hopefully get back next year, hopefully for that. Brilliant. And that's that's the heart of the, the next book. Yeah. The, the yeah. book. Yeah. That's that's um, that's really really exciting. Yeah. And then I suppose you you don't look much further than that at the moment. It's there's no there's well, no urge. Where the world is at the moment, Jimmy. I don't know if I can look forward past next week, to be honest. But yeah, oh, no, yeah, that's true. at the moment that's that's where I where I am. But I mean, I think my my deepest subject is it's love, right? It's love for the this glittering profusion of non-human life around us. I think one of the great mistakes that we all make is just assuming that the world is here for just us, and that's just not the case. Yeah. No. Well, I I want to show you something, <laughs> and you you do have these moments, don't you, when you some more than others when you're when you're out with the natural world and i don't want to get all because i'm not very good at getting no you should, you should hopefully go, but, go chris packham well i was so i was out checking a, a goshawk site um yesterday in the forest and came across a kill um which was very obviously a jay and when i wow. picked one I was, oh i haven't got them here i got told off that i put them in the, i put them in the shed because i i had a skull and an owl pellet and some gossip feathers. I've got a gossip feather up there that I found. But I found obviously part of the, the remains of the jay was the blue feather off the wing. And it was just the most spectacular thing. Just what that one feather that I picked up on it blew my mind. No, it's true, Jimmy. Those, those, those little blue feathers on the coverts of the wings there, they are like, I mean, you know, I look when I find them, it's like. I'm not even over overstating this. It's like finding a sapphire or a gem. It's like it's yeah. so beautiful. Um, it's just, yeah. it, it was, it, and and I, I I gathered a couple of them up and put them in my pocket, and yeah, and they'll go they'll go in. A, it's weird, isn't it? But they'll go in a cupboard. They'll I won't throw them away. They'll, no, they'll exactly. they're in there. I was, and then I was talking to a friend about it today, and then he 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 said to me, he "Goes wait till you find a kingfisher. You know, if you ever get the have a kingfisher in your hand with the iridescence and the blue of it, yeah, it's yeah, it's. But this these these few feathers were yeah, yeah stunning. Yeah. Uh, what what a wonderful thing, you know. Well, that's really that lovely. There you, there you go. And I love how. So how it's, I, I, I love how gothic it is too. Like I found these dead bird feathers. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. And then I, when, when I found the skull, I was like, yes, this is that's going on with me. That's that's going in the shelf. That's going on the shelf. skull on the windowsill. I, I'm a yeah, naturalist. We're just a bunch of weirdos. Weirdos, yeah. Yeah. So um yeah, and but luckily the one thing I did do got the pellet out of my pocket because I've done that before, put an owl pellet in my pocket and it's disintegrated, and then you've gone to get check, you've gone to get change out your pocket to pay for the for the tips for a waiter, and you've yeah. just got yeah. rodent remains. Grey dust with these kind of like bones sort of it's like you have something out of a horrifying science fiction. <laughs> yeah. Just, just, just leave just leave that for a tip in Frankie and Benny's. There you go. <laughs> 
<laughs> anyway, that was a uh, yeah. So I that's that's in the that's in the cupboard as well. We are it is, it is macabre, but then that's nature. That's nature, isn't it? That's, that's uh, the way it goes. Yeah, that's uh, that's life and death. Oh well, it's been Helen. It's been an absolute treat having you on. I don't speak to you enough, really. I'm, no, we I'm should really we should enjoy. just chat. We should chat more. We should just chat more. It's been too long. Um, and it's I know, I know. Well, when, well, what I'm hoping to do, obviously, people, I've, I have advertised it. This is the last week, so I've got yeah you, and then hopefully my good friend Steve Roberts, um, who's nest finder extraordinaire and been all over the world and does all the nest finding for Spring Watch and stuff like that. So. Mm -hmm he's on hopefully this week uh, and then I've got a special guest I've got a surprise for next week to finish and what I'm going to do is I'm hopefully going to do this monthly with different people because like James Aldred most people have never heard of James Aldred and they lo they loved him you know the people that caught it loved it so so when the new book is out I yeah. will get I'll let yeah. you get you back on we'll have you, yeah. we'll have you back on yeah. silly stories to tell Jimmy I can go I can talk for it's been such a pleasure and no, I really appreciate you inviting me on and it's you know goodbye everyone I'm you know it's been I'm sorry I can't see everyone's faces but it's been really nice talking to you for once so no it's uh it's all right right uh goodbye everyone on Facebook we're gonna uh we're gonna look love you and leave you um, Thanks, Helen.